Okay, we'll get started because I, I know a number of us, including me today, teach at 1.30. So I apologize in advance that I'm going to have to run out. Um, but I'm really happy to be able to introduce Matthew Fears. Matthew is one of our postdocs this year. He received his uh, Ph.D. at Duke. Uh, he's going to spend this year working on a theory he's developed about signaling in international politics, particularly as it applies to British signaling uh, prior to World War I. Uh, his project, Are You Talking to Me?, uh, as I understand it, explores three puzzles in international relations theory. The first is what causes a country to have or perceive incomplete information and lead states to war. And the second is why, despite high levels of transparency and freedom of information, are democracies likely to be attacked? And lastly, what role do opposition groups play in military crises? And to answer those questions, he's developed a, a new and novel theory, I guess, that focuses on unity and the hawkishness of government. And he's going to explain that theory to us this morning or this afternoon. And uh, I'm really pleased you're here. When Kathy mentioned that today would be election day, I thought, well, we'll go forward anyway. And uh, so I'm glad you're here. And look forward to hearing what you have to say, uh, thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, the title has changed somewhat, and um, but the, the theory remains the same, I hope. Uh, thank you all for coming out today. I know it is, of course, Election Day, and I appreciate this, this turnout, uh, as well as I hope turnout at the polls um, either earlier or later today. Uh, I vote in Oregon, so I sent in my ballot long ago and didn't have to deal with uh, waiting in line, which I'm thankful for. Um, but my, my wife got through in an hour and a half this morning, so I, I hope that bodes well for, for later today. Uh, at very least, I hope this uh, talk will distract you from constantly updating CNN or um, 538.com or any other site to find out upon what the newest, latest, incorrect um, exit polls are telling us. Um, so as, as Rick mentioned, I'm um, Matt Ferris. Uh, I'll be presenting work for my dissertation today entitled Tough Talk, uh, Cheap Talk, and Babbling, so perhaps actually appropriate for Election Day. Um, and uh, focusing on a theory of government unity and government hawkishness and whether or not this leads to uh, military challenges. And I'd really like to thank both, uh, not only everyone for turning out today, but the Mershon Center for allowing me to present today, and, and of course, uh, even more so for uh, hosting me this year and allowing me to, um, to further my work on this project. So as Rick mentioned, um, this study is really driven by, uh, by several puzzles, and I, I'd really like to focus in on two of them. Um, one is democracies are regarded as having a number of advantages in international relations. Um, they're believed to have better transparency, better ability to signal. Um, they have a reputation for keeping their promises. And um, they have success in conflict. So if we believe all of these theoretical advantages and, in some cases, empirical advantages that democracies um, should have, we might wonder why democracies are still frequently targeted in international conflict. In fact, more frequently targeted in international conflict than autocratic regimes. A number of studies have shown that democracies are 20 to 25% more likely to be attacked um, than autocratic regimes. So there's a disparity here between the theory and the empirics, and part of what my study uh, hopes to do is sort out why that disparity exists. The second puzzle uh, is regards most specifically realist scholarship, but also concerns um, political science scholarship in general, and that's uh, the realist expectation that 
divisions within democracies will create problems for how they conduct their foreign policy. And the way that realist scholars are going about dealing with that is assuming away divisions within countries, right? So the assumption of the unitary rational actor, uh, which has served political scientists arguably well, appears in uh, the work of, of course, Kenneth Waltz and uh, Morgenthau and others. Um, and the divisions within democracies have, of course, been lamented by political leaders themselves. Uh, the famous uh, Harry Truman quote, I wonder how far Moses would have gone if he'd taken a poll in Egypt, right? That, uh, they feel that political leaders are a little too attached to what their democratic uh, publics might think. So my study hopes to examine what happens if we relax the assumption of the unitary actor. There's been a number, uh, recently, uh, a number of good studies examining uh, relaxing the assumption of rationality, looking at um, idiosyncrasies uh, that develop within uh, not just democratic regimes, but among political leaders, et cetera. And I hope to uh, examine what happens if we relax the other part of that assumption, the unitary assumption, and see uh, what sort of results that might lead us to. So to explore these two puzzles, I'm going to investigate a question, what conditions lead democracies uh, to be targeted for conflict in an international uh, system? What leads democracies to be attacked? Um, and this rests upon a theory that I'm going to present in, in more detail in a moment of government unity and its degree of hawkishness. Um, in particular, I'm going to argue that more unified governments uh, have a number of advantages over, uh, in dispute negotiations over divided governments. And finally, just as a little preview here of what's coming down the pipeline, I'm going to find that uh, more hawkish, but in particular, more unified governments are less likely to be challenged um, than unified uh, hawkish uh, governments in international relations. All right, so the presentation is broken into four parts. I'm going to begin by presenting my theory of government unity uh, and hawkishness and why democratic governments are targeted in international conflict. I'll then move on to a somewhat brief uh, case study of the Falklands War and how it and wars like it uh, motivate my research question and clarify the causal process that's proposed by my theory. I'll then briefly discuss the statistical tests, um, hoping that people's eyes don't glaze over, but I will focus um, particularly on the substantive um, results of those tests and then conclude with um, some discussion of the results and um, maybe the policy implications as well. All right, so the theory I developed seeks to answer both the puzzles outlined in the start of this presentation. And to do this, the theory focuses on two aspects um, of democratic governments, their unity um, and their views on the use of force, and what, what I'll, in shorthand, refer to as their hawkishness. Uh, both these factors have a significant uh, impact on how democratic states relate to potential challengers with whom they may have ongoing disputes. So government unity, or lack thereof, has implications for how democratic states relate to uh, other states in the international system, uh, particularly states with whom they have disputes. Um, the government unity helps them clarify the stakes involved in the dispute at hand. If the government is divided with some foreign policy officials taking one line and other officials taking another line, um, it's likely that any statements the government makes will be viewed as incredible. Um, further, mixed messages are likely to make it unclear what actions will be taken in response to an attack. Second, divided governments are more likely to be viewed as weak um, by potential challengers who believe that intergovernmental conflict will make it more difficult to adequately respond to a potential military challenge. Further, divided governments are uh, unlikely to be able to take concerted action uh, as tensions mount. Instead of vigorously responding to threats, provocations, or incursions, 
uh, divided governments are likely to respond incoherently. Turning to government hawkishness, here I'm essentially adopting what's already a, a sort of well-worn um, view in international relations scholarship. The dovish governments are viewed as weak in international relations, um, which might make them more vulnerable to attack. Uh, and that, that weakness might encourage uh, potential attackers to seek them out. Of these two variables, for, both the, uh, for theoretical reasons, I believe that government unity is the more important and has uh, more purchase on the actual outcome than, than hawkishness does, although I believe that both variables um, are significant. So combining these two variables, we have a theory of government types uh, going from divided doves to unified hawks. Divided doves being the most likely to be challenged, being able to un not clearly signal their intentions, um, not clearly deter, as well as ha being hampered by their dovishness. Divided hawks uh, have hawkishness on their side, and that may deter some potential adversaries. But of course, that message gets somewhat muddled in the fact that they're divided, and so they're still relatively likely to be challenged. Moving to unified governments, we see unified doves are relatively unlikely to be challenged. They have all the benefits of being unified. The one drawback they have is, is their dovishness may um, be a, a signal that could cause them to be attacked. And finally, unified hawks, uh, as the most uh, least likely to be attacked, benefiting both from their unity and from the fact that their hawkishness may, uh, may deter potential challengers. So I'll return to this notion of these four government types, but these are the, the sort of the underpinnings of the theory and um, how these types of governments relate to uh, potential uh, disagreements with other states. So having laid out these potential government types, I now want to trace a process that leads from a particular government type to why would they be attacked in international conflict. So the theory implies a causal chain of events. We begin with four different government types, and we'll focus on the impact of government disunity and, and dovishness. And focusing on that, we see that dovish, uh, divided dovish governments cannot clearly signal their interest in a dispute. Um, they fail to take action when uh, threats appear, or they take contradictory actions. For example, um, bellicose rhetoric combined with withdrawing troops from the front, these sorts of things that don't necessarily help their cause. And of course, they may appear weak uh, to potential challengers. Um, example of this is the, uh, the 1999 cargo war between India and Pakistan. Um, Vajpayee's government, incredibly disparate, a lot of different parties, and also um, totally internally divided. Uh, and this, this really did embolden uh, Pakistanis, particularly Musharraf, um, saw this as, as a key reason for why Pakistan should attack and seek to regain part of Kashmir in 1999. So these problems, these, these sorts of signals they send out, lead to problems in negotiations. Now, <clears throat> I'll discuss more specifically in a minute exactly what case I'm looking at. But these are all ongoing territorial disputes, long-running disputes between two sides. And there, so there's iterated interaction between the potential challenger and the potential target state and negotiations that are occurring over these uh, over these. Uh, disputed territories. Divided governments are unable to communicate a clear strategy of what they want um, out of these negotiations. And the problem that creates for them is they cannot credibly bargain with their potential adversary. At the same time, they don't take credible deterrent uh, action. So negotiations are more likely to break down and they're not signaling clear deterrence. And that leads the challenger to take a particular view that, well, if I can't get this territory 
through negotiations because this government is incredible, deadlocked, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe it's time to think about using military force and the use of military force being made more promising by the fact that these governments often don't take the necessary steps to, uh, to make their deterrent threat credible. So the status quo revision is done then through military force. All right, so that's the theory without putting um, much flesh on it. Now we'll try to sort of look at this in more detail by uh, taking the Falklands case as an example. Um, so this small rock outcropping in the South Atlantic where, as I'm sure all of you know, sheep outnumber people by something like 10 to 1, um, was the cause of a long-running dispute between Argentina and Britain um, starting in um, 1829, but um, even prior to that, causing dispute between England, France, and, and Spain. Um, and this uh, this dispute in 1982 led to a brief, uh, brief but bloody war between the two sides um, over this bleak and gloomy set of isles um, as Argentina attempted to retake them and uh, and then Britain eventually came in and expelled them. I, I enjoy this quote, particularly uh, the section where a garrison must be kept in a state that contemplates with envy the exiles of Siberia. Um, yes, the joyous Falkland Islands. Um, once again, showing it's not necessarily the value of the territory over which you fight, but the um, the beliefs that go along with holding this territory. So when it comes to the Falklands War, there's a very uh, try-and-true standard narrative that exists. This is um, the story is told by Jack Levy and um, also by Ned LeBeau. Um, it involves an increasingly unpopular Argentine junta um, that's facing significant discontent at home over failed economic policies and um, general discontent. Uh, and the uh, junta is looking for some way to rally the public to its side, to increase its legitimacy. So what does the junta decide to do? Well, it decides, let's launch a diversionary war. We'll get the rally around the flag effect. Nobody likes the fact that British um, are in charge of the Falklands. This is our chance to both regain some legitimacy at home and, oh, by the way, it'll also make sure the military um, doesn't try to overthrow us. Um, particularly the Navy has been bucking um, to go after the Falklands for a long time. So diversionary war it is. This is our path out of our domestic troubles. Um, this is a nice story, um, and there's certainly some elements of this that are that are important to the Falklands War story, but there are also some serious limitations. Um, one is that if the Argentinian junta was looking for a way um, to divert the public's attention, if they're looking for a diversionary war, it's not a given that they would choose the Falklands. Right? Argentina at that time had two other territorial disputes ongoing, one with Brazil, one with Chile, and in particular the one with uh, Chile over the, uh, the Beagle Channel um, had been heating up since late 1970s. So this was also a prime candidate for a diversionary war. Why uh, did, did the uh, Argentinians choose um, the Falklands? The second question uh, is, this dispute had been ongoing since 1829. Uh, Britain had essentially asked the Argentines during World War II to not invade the islands and for some reason, the Argentines agreed to this. Um, but in particular, since the mid-1970s, tensions had really been increasing over the islands. Um, there had been increasing tension uh, because of the, at least in part because of the economic situation in, uh, in Argentina at that time. Yet, the war occurs in 1982. Not in uh, 1975, not in 1977, but in 1982. Third, <laughs> 
the, the Argentine junta truly believed that Britain would not respond uh, in the way it responded. So they believed that they could take the islands, and this would lead to a different negotiating place for them, right? They'd be able to negotiate from a position of strength, where previously they had been negotiating from a position of weakness. So taking the islands was very much a part of the ongoing negotiating strategy between uh, the Argentines and the, the British. And they did not expect then that Britain would actually seek to retake the islands through military force. In fact, that was part of the impetus for them trying to take the islands, was that there would not be a British military response. Well, of course, this is a dramatic miscalculation. Um, Britain uh, steps in and does retake the islands um, with military force. Why? Why did the uh, junta make such a dramatic miscalculation? So bringing these questions together, the the core question, what made the Falklands such an attractive target uh, in 1982? Just to go back for a moment, uh, once again, this was not the first time that this issue had arisen. It did not sort of just appear in 1982 on the radar. Since 1975, Argentina had been suffering very serious economic problems, um, mounting debt, uh, a bad foreign trade balance, and um, this would last for a decade and a half. So that led to sort of increased heat on the government to deliver something. So in 1975, um, we see Argentine papers begin to really push the government for some sort of action on the Falklands. The British ambassador says, look, if you invade, you will receive, uh, we, we will respond militarily. Don't think about it. Um, the following year, once again, the, the language in the newspapers and from the junta uh, begins to ramp up. More talk of invasion. Um, the Argentines fire on a British research vessel. Um, and the as the tensions increase, the Brits send a frigate to sort of once again shore up, uh, show their support for the Falklands, and the tensions dissipate. Then once again, in 1977, tensions increase again. Uh, once again, there's more outcry in the media. And while negotiations are still ongoing, the, uh, the Brits send two frigates and a nuclear submarine to the Falklands just to show, once again, that they are committed to keeping these islands. So there's sort of this trend, right, through the, the mid to late 1970s. Uh, economic problems, increased pressure from the press on the military government, uh, but very strong and clear British deterrent responses with regard to uh, the Argentine threats. So what makes things different in 1982? Well, 1979, Margaret Thatcher's government um, is swept into power in Britain. Uh, it continues negotiations that it inherited from the previous government, but it differed from the previous labor governments in two significant ways, right? Of course, not surprisingly, for my story, these ways relate to my theory. So, one, the Thatcher government, and this may run counter to sort of our, our typical beliefs about the Thatcher government, but the Thatcher government, with regard to the Falklands, right, with regard to this particular relationship, was internally divided. And the main division that you had existed between the Foreign Office, um, Lord Carrington, who was the Foreign Secretary, and um, more hawkish branches uh, of, the, of the Thatcher government. Um, Thatcher viewed the Foreign Office approach as, quote, finding ways to appease foreign governments, end quote. Um, so she did not necessarily hold the Foreign Office in the highest regard. Um, Carrington and Thatcher, prior to the Falklands, had already clashed over relations with Europe. Uh, the Foreign Office wanted closer relations with Europe and over the United States, where uh, Thatcher wanted closer relations, particularly after 1980 with the, with the Reagan administration. So there were pretty significant divisions um, within the, the uh, government over how to approach uh, the Falklands. The 
<clears throat> sorry, the, the Foreign Office was much more willing to make pretty significant concessions on the Falklands, while other elements of the government were, were not at all willing to make those, uh, those sorts of concessions. In addition, the Foreign Office was continuing to negotiate um, with the Argentines without input from Thatcher or from the islanders themselves. So Nicholas Ridley, who was the, uh, the minister in charge of the Falklands within the Foreign Office, is meeting in secret with uh, the Argentine Foreign Minister and talking about leasing the islands back to the Argentines, some sort of you know, 99-year lease, 50-year lease, some, but returning sovereignty at some point to the Argentines in a way that makes the government in Argentina believe that there's actually going to be a return of sovereignty to Argentina. Of course, this theory would not fly in with the British government, and once it's actually presented to the government and islanders, um, it receives a fairly uh, negative showing. But the Argentinian government labors under the idea for over a year that there's actually some reality of this occurring, um, not the least of which because they had someone in the foreign office leading them to believe this was likely to occur. Third, there are very confused uh, actions going on um, on the part of the British. They're unable to decide, do they want to negotiate? Do they want to defend the islands? And they end up trapped, neither negotiating nor nor adequately defending the islands. And I'll talk more in a minute about um, how that came about. But the the British actions um, are, are fairly incoherent. So, of course, the Iron Lady, Margaret Thatcher, known as very hawkish, her relationship uh, during the Cold War with President Reagan, also viewed as uh, you know, two like minds. Um, however, I would argue her government, with regard to the Falcons, was not very hawkish at all. Certainly, there were segments of her government that wanted to toe a more hawkish line. However, Thatcher sort of wanted the Falklands uh, issue to go away, and the Foreign Office was pursuing a, certainly a very dovish line. And because of this, um, I, I argue that her government is, is in the end, dovish and, and not hawkish, in particular for two reasons. One, all the Argentine provocations that occur early in, in Thatcher's reign, that includes um, Argentines going to a different set of islands that were under British rule, flying a flag. Um, the British were sent then to essentially remove uh, the Argentinians from this island. Yet once they get close, they're called back because there's a disagreement between the Ministry of Defense and the Foreign Office. These sorts of signals do not uh, bode well for the Thatcher government. More than that, what you have is a difference over um, what the Thatcher government is willing to offer versus what previous governments were willing to offer. The Thatcher government is the first one to talk about leaseback to the Argentines. And leaseback is is extremely controversial for the most part because it's something that's opposed by both the left and the right in Britain. The left can't believe that the government is willing to give over sovereignty to a military junta, and the right can't believe that they're willing to give over sovereignty, period. So the Thatcher government has sort of removed itself um, from from these sort of sides of the political thought in Britain um, and, and shows itself to be much uh, much more dovish than, than the previous labor governments had been. So returning to this process tracing that we, we laid out when we discussed the theory. First of all, the British were not clear on how much they valued the Falklands. Um, the foreign ministry seemed happy to be rid of them, um, particularly because uh, the negotiations had been going on for so long, but they were very clear that the islands needed to be protected until they were, were turned over. So they said, if we're not going to negotiate seriously, we have to 
think about um, some sort of approach that will protect the islands. On the other hand, the Ministry of Defense said protecting the islands is extremely costly. We have real budget deficits. We want to get rid of any defenses on the Falklands because it's ridiculous. You know, it's in the South uh, Atlantic. It's far away. What are we doing spending all this money on these? So you have sort of cold financial calculations versus negotiations, serious clashes um, within the government. And Thatcher refuses to take a clear position, although she does uh, sort of occasionally endorse things that the foreign office is doing. Um, But this, of course, goes against other elements in her government that argue that any thought of turning the Falklands over is is abhorrent. Uh, So the divisions uh, within the Thatcher government um, underline weakness and and indecision. Um, As Argentina had done in the past, there were a number of provocations prior to the actual attack. Plans to invade the islands were published in an Argentine newspaper um, prior to the attack, um, and a number of other papers, of course, called for action. Of course, we'd seen this sort of stuff before. So you can forgive the British if they don't necessarily believe um, that there's actually a wolf this time. However, there, are, there is a significant difference in the fact that this time, the British decided uh, they were going to remove the HMS Endurance, this um, military icebreaker that had been at, uh, located at House of the Falklands um, since uh, the dispute started, uh, since the, the 60s. And removing that ship was a clear signal, and the British knew this, and of course the Argentines knew this, that Britain was reducing its commitment to the Falklands. Um, this action was protested by a letter signed by 150 MPs. However, it, it moved forward, and, and the decision to remove the endurance was, uh, was taken And this was viewed very significantly by um, those in the British and the Argentine government. So the gridlock in the Thatcher government meant that it was trapped in indecision on two fronts. One is, I've already pointed out, the negotiations had essentially stalled. The Thatcher government internally admitted it was playing for time. Uh, It was not willing to actually offer anything of substance, um, yet it felt like it should save face and continue negotiations. Um, And this went on for almost a year before the the invasion occurred. As important, uh, the second dispute was between the Foreign Office and the Ministry of Defense over the actual value of the uh, Falklands. Um, And the Ministry of Defense basically felt that it wasn't willing to spend the money that would be necessary to defend the islands uh, in the event of possible attack. Lord Carrington, the Foreign Secretary, repeatedly said the British had three options uh, with regard to the Falklands. One was some sort of leaseback return of sovereignty, uh, the second was to try to play for time, and the third was a Falk, uh, fortress Falkland strategy, right? Militarize the Falklands to the extent that it, uh, that any sort of Argentine threat would be deterred. He said the second option, playing for time, wasn't credible. It was, was not possible to continue. So you're really left with two options. Of those two options, the British chose essentially to do neither. They, they didn't negotiate credibly, and they didn't seek to protect the islands. In the end, what does this lead to? Well, the view from Buenos Aires is the Brits are no longer negotiating in good faith. They can be uh, well understood that they would take that view. Essentially, most in the Foreign Office felt this way as well in Britain. Um, And since the talk showed no help of progress, what are the Argentines going to do in order to change the status quo? Well, the left to think about uh, reversing the status quo through the use of military force, which, of course, uh, in April 1982, uh, they decide to do. And they do successfully take the islands for a short period of time before um, the British uh, respond militarily and and recapture them. But the British signaling up to this point had been so uh, confused, um, so incoherent, 
um, it's not surprising that the, uh, the Argentines thought that they could take the islands without, uh, without a real response. All right, so the, the Falklands case study offers us opportunity to see um, the two variables of interest um, and the, causal, the, sorry, the causal pathway proposed by the theory. Um, the case studies have the benefit of allowing us to lay out the, um, the theory and how it relates to actual events on the ground. However, of course, the, the drawback here is that we don't necessarily get a larger picture of how these uh, variables work um, in, uh, in a large-end study. And so I also can uh, include in this um, a new data set that I created where I coded both government unity and government hawkishness um, for 18 dyads uh, between 1950 and 2000. Both of these variables are coded on, on five-point scales. So to choose these 18 dyads, I, I sort of went through three levels of inclusion for inclusion in the data set. The first is I looked at territorial disputes. Territorial disputes have a number of advantages. One is that there is a reasonable expectation that force could be used at any time to revise the status quo in a territorial dispute. Uh, in addition, uh, Paul Huth has provided a nice data set that, uh, on territorial disputes that uh, codes their, their time period. Um, and territorial disputes have also been found in a number of other international relations uh, studies to be an important source of international conflict. Uh, so studies by both Huth and um, Brecker and Wilkenfeld show that territorial disputes are a key ground for international disputes. The second uh, sort of level in the case selection is dyads with at least one democracy. The key for me, as I noted earlier, I'm interested in, in, um, in the role of democracy in this, but I'm interested in members of government who can at least be thought to have some independence as decision makers. Um, these are the sorts of assumptions you can't make with a, uh, a military regime or other autocratic regimes necessarily. But with democracies, there's some belief that the different, uh, the foreign uh, secretary or the Ministry of Defense has some independence from the beliefs of the head of state. In addition, democracies have all these other attributes, right? Clear delineations of responsibility. They're more open to dissent. There's a free press uh, and media to report on, on disagreements. Um, all of these go with that as well. The final factor uh, is the degree to which these territorial disputes take on a political character. So there are a lot of territorial disputes between democracies and non-democracies, which simply never really enter into the political realm. They're not something that parties or politicians take a stand on. They essentially don't generate much um, public interest. I focused on disputes where there were actually political stakes, where politicians would run on um, where they stood on these sorts of disputes and what solutions they had uh, they offered to deal with these disputes. Okay, since, uh, since the two variables that I'm introducing are self-generated and new, um, I thought I'd just take a, a moment here to talk about where they, uh, where they come from. So when I talk about government unity, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about the balance of factions within the government um, between key foreign policymakers. So between the head of state, the foreign secretary, the defense secretary, and any liaisons or ministers that might be um, going out to the territory in question or might be dealing with the territory in question. Um, when measuring this, I'm also looking at two other factors. One is the frequency of dispute between these uh, figures and also the, the level of dispute between these, these figures. So are there 
large disagreements between how to approach this territory, and if so, do they often make it in the press, or are they relatively minor and infrequently make it into the, to the press? So for this variable, I've scaled it from um, negative two, symbolizing a, a highly divided government, to positive two, a highly unified government. Now for hawkishness, once again, I'm looking at the different factions that may exist within the government. Most important is the head of state. Are they viewed as hawkish or dovish on the particular issue in question? And then what are the positions of the other cabinet ministers? Uh, if they all line up, then they are viewed as unified and whatever they line up as. Um, if they're divided, then it depends what the head of state is as far as how they're counted. Uh, and then this is supplemented by views that the politician makes before taking office as well as shortly after assuming office, and to some degree, party platforms. What do the parties say about these, these disputes? Once again, a five-point scale from, from negative two for dovishness to positive two for hawkishness. All right. Um, just to give a brief example of, of what I'm talking about here, you got a sense of it when discussing the Falklands, but another one, um, Israel under Ben-Gurion um, and its relations with Egypt. You had a very dominant prime minister, particularly in foreign relations. Um, Ben-Gurion took not only the, uh, the role of prime minister, but for a time also defense minister. Um, you saw some divisions in the Israeli cabinet up to 1956. In 1956, they removed Moshe Sharat uh, from, from the government, who was much more dovish than other ministers. He's replaced by Golda Meir, Golda Meir, a well-known hawk. Um, and at that point, you have a real hawkish lineup, right? You have Ben-Gurion, you have Meir, Perez, and Dan. And so you have a very unified hawkish government at that point. Um, it's not surprising that this government then soon goes to war with Egypt in 1956. But that is um, outside the realm of what I'll be talking about today. All right. <clears throat> so to the statistical tests, the variable of interest, the variable I'm seeking to explain, is when the country becomes the target of a war, dichotomous, receives a one if there's a war, where it's the target, a zero otherwise. This, is com this data comes from the um, militarized interstate disputes data set, and I then cross-checked it um, against historical sources. Um, the second set of variables are the key independent variables. I've already talked about these, um, government unity and hawkishness. In addition, there's a, an interaction term. And then a number of control variables, and there are actually some more that I didn't include here, but this is, this is sort of the, the basic control variables included. Balance of uh, capabilities is the ratio of um, the potential target state's capabilities um, to those of the potential aggressor. Uh, we would imagine that more powerful states will be less likely to be attacked. Uh, government strength is the degree to which the government in power controls the lower house of government, so the degree to which it has both executive and legislative control of the government. Um, there are no clear predictions on what that will mean, but uh, that's something that also comes up in other literature on uh, democratic domestic policy. Government tenure, there are clear theories about what government tenure should mean as far as uh, attack, likelihood of attack. A uh, study by uh, Jelpi and Greco argues that younger governments are more likely to be subject to international attack than more experienced governments. So the longer a government is in office, the less likely it would be an attack. Part of the belief there is that younger governments uh, are more willing to negotiate, more willing to give away things than older governments, particular governments that are facing election, um, not surprisingly. And finally, the good old international relations standby peace years, the number of years since uh, conflict last occurred. Uh, we would expect the longer countries have been at peace, the more likely they are to stay at peace. Um, I'm actually going to skip this slide in the interest of time. Um, all right. So just some simple bivariate 
correlations to get a sense of whether there's any plausibility to this theory, right? So divided governments, much, much more likely to be attacked than unified governments. Nine cases of divided governments, one case of unified. Um, this is a statistically significant relationship. Um, we move on to dovish versus hawkish governments. Actually, the same number of attacks under dovish and hawkish. However, there are many, many more hawkish governments than dovish. So once again, a statistically significant difference that hawks are less likely to be attacked than, uh, than doves. This returns us to our earlier two-by-two uh, two table of government types ranging from divided doves to unified hawks. And what we see is, um, as expected, divided doves relatively likely to be attacked, whereas unified hawks um, extremely unlikely to be attacked. I should note, oh, sorry, yes. That's right, yeah. Um, I should note, I've also done these analyses with uh, using the MIDS data set, but lowering the threshold from war to um, just conflict um, that extends over one week in time, so that there, uh, which includes many more cases. Those results are relatively similar, although in the q and I could talk about some of the differences that exist between the war data set and simply the conflict data set. All right, so to the big, um, ugly regression tables, um, or beautiful, depending on your point of view. Um, the, the bivariate... Uh, Analysis is nice. It gives us some idea that some, there's some plausibility to this theory, but we also, of course, want to control for a number of other factors which might influence the likelihood that a state would be attacked. To do that, uh, I've conducted two different uh, types of multivariate uh, regression analyses. One is what I call the original sample. This is just normal, rare events, um, logit regression, uh, including um, some time splines, which I don't show here. That comes out more or less as one would expect um, hawkishness and government unity both, uh, as you increase them, lead to a lower likelihood of attack, and they're statistically significant. There are some other control variables that are significant as well. Uh, in addition to that, I also ran a, uh, a matched uh, analysis. So part of the problem that's been analyzed by people like Gary King is that in our statistical analyses, we make assumptions about counterfactuals which simply are crazy, right? So the counterfactual of Canada being an authoritarian regime in 1990 is hard for us to palate. Um, th there are simply so many other factors involved there that we think it's probably unlikely that any of those would point to Canada being uh, an authoritarian regime, right? You can't keep all, keep all the other uh, factors involved and think that that would happen. So what we're trying to do is make realistic counterfactuals, find um, pairs of states or matches that are similar in many ways, with the one difference being that one received the treatment and the other didn't receive the treatment. In this case, the treatment is government unity. Is the government unified or is it divided? So I ran uh, uh, analysis by Gary King and actually um, Zhang, um, which, are, which addresses this problem of um, unrealistic counterfactuals. And what does it show? Well, it shows that in the standard analysis, there are a lot of unrealistic counterfactuals in there. Um, and because of that, uh, most of what I'm trying to do at that point is extrapolate beyond the data set to uh, data points outside what are there. So we're trying to then find a way to not do that, to instead work within the confines of what they term the convex hole, within reasonable parameters of interpolation rather than extrapolation. To do that, I ran a matching analysis. Um, this involves trying to find uh, data points which are closely proximate to one another so that you have divided governments and unified governments that are most similar in their other characteristics, right, in the other control characteristics. 
And doing that, uh, I had to drop 100 and, let's see, 124 observations. Um, but the idea here is that you are improving your, the fit of the model and you're moving um, the, the convex hole. The results are relatively similar. It actually mostly hurts the control variables. The control variables, some of them go on to be insignificant. However, for both hawkishness and government unity, still negative, um, still statistically significant, um, but a drop in um, the number of observations included. So that's all well and good. Um, what we'd really like to know is, do these matter in a substantive real-world sense? Um, for logistical models, we can't just read the coefficients off a page and know what a change in that means for a change in the dependent variable. So I ran uh, substantive effects to look at these changes. And of course, since we're talking about international conflict, um, it's similar to talking about you know, smoking and cancer. Um, this is a relatively rare event. We can be very happy about that. Um, however, what we're really interested in there is the change in the relative risk of war targeting, not necessarily the, the overall probability. And what you see here is both the variables of interest have pretty substantial uh, significance substantively, that a change in government unity leads to a very large substantive drop in the risk of war targeting. The same for hawkishness, um, although less than, than government unity. We do see government tenure matters. Um, the problem there is that you see the confidence intervals, which are in parentheses below, um, are enormous. Um, so we shouldn't believe too much about that negative 52% um, because of the, the size of confidence interval. Um, we can come back to this table. I know it's sort of a lot of information to just suddenly take in um, in the, the Q&A if you'd like. All right, so we've done the case. We've done the numbers. Let's move on to analysis and discussion. Um, and the first part of the analysis is a um, colorful graph, um, which I hope um, you find useful. I think it's uh, an interesting way of looking at it. Um, we see that as risk moves from highest to lowest, we're going from the numbers where hawkishness and uh, unity are lowest to the area where hawkishness and unity are the highest, right? So from the back of the um, graph where you have very low values for both government unity and hawkishness towards the front where you have high values for those two variables. Um, in particular, we see that regardless of the level of hawkishness, low levels of government unity are, are really associated with, with higher propensities for attack. Returning to our idea of these different types, right, these different government types, here I just dichotomize the variables. Either you're a dove or you're a hawk. What we see here is <coughs> divided doves are really something special in a bad way. Um, they, they are signal, uh, singled out for uh, attack at a much higher propensity than any of the other regimes involved. What we see here is when we're talking about the divisions, right, between uh, government unity and hawkishness, the difference between unified uh, doves and unified hawks is fairly small compared to the difference between unified doves and divided doves, right, which is absolutely enormous. So once again, when I talked in the beginning about these, uh, the importance of the relative variables, right, unity trumping hawkishness in terms of significance. And the third um, graph that I wanted to show you is, is about the propensity of attack based on three levels of hawkishness. So this is um, government unity going from negative two to two. Um, based on three different uh, levels of hawkishness, the blue line at the top being um, very dovish and the green dotted line at the bottom being very um, hawkish. What we see is that the differences that do emerge between hawkish and dovish governments really come out when they're divided. Once you look at unified governments, um, really at the far right edge of the graph, 
those differences have shrunk enormously. So to the extent that hawkishness matters, it's particularly at the, uh, the divided end of the spectrum and not the unified um, for the probability of attack. All right, so to the findings. Um, both government unity and hawkishness are statistically significant um, in both the matched and the unmatched um, samples. Uh, we've already gone over that in the expected direction. Uh, in addition, they both have fairly large substantive effects, although the substantive effect for government unity is even larger at 81% than the government um, than the impact of government hawkishness. We also see the impact, as we just saw from that previous graph, the impact of hawkishness, the extent of it, that it exists, is really among divided governments. Once you have a unified government, the, uh, the significance is, is much uh, lower. Returning to this idea that divided doves are particularly significant, this is really the vulnerable group. Um, they're the ones that are most likely to be subject to attack, um, as seen by the graphs and the, um, the statistical results. And finally, the, the control variables, uh, for the most part, are not, uh, do not have very much impact, although it is interesting to note that um, the more control the government has over the, uh, the legislative branch, the more likely it is to be attacked. Um, that's perhaps not good news. Um, all right, as far as the analysis goes, returning to the puzzles that we started with, why are democracies frequent targets of international conflict? Now, obviously, this theory doesn't go into differences between autocracies and democracies because I think internal differences among democracies are, are in fact, just as interesting. Um, and what you see here is that there are factors that have been essentially ignored by other analyses, and I would argue that prime factor is government unity, but um, hawkishness is important as well. And we see that at times... Um, governments are not able to take advantage of these supposed advantages that they should have under various theories about democracy. So arguments about transparency, signaling, um, ability to make credible commitments, those might be erased by the fact that they are divided and hence not able to credibly commit, not able to clearly signal these sorts of, of, of problems. Getting back to these realist views on unified government versus the reality of democratic politics, um, we see that once we relax this assumption of government unity, we, we get some pretty interesting results. Um, and in fact, there are real problems with assuming that governments are necessarily unified. Um, those times when they're not unified are in fact quite interesting. Uh, so I think there, there's, there's real value to pursuing this line of analysis. Although the results show that hawkishness is an important variable and does lead to uh, uh, and that dovishness leads to an increased likelihood of attack, I'd argue that considering the focus in both international relations scholarship and the popular press on hawkishness is somewhat misplaced. Uh, there is much more going on with government unity than there is with hawkishness, um, and government unity is theoretically uh, more important as well. And finally, there's a, there's a long-running strand in international relations literature which argues that... Um, Strength is found um, through appearing hawkish, and that dovish governments suffer from a number of problems. Thus, dovish governments should pretend to be hawkish. This is one of the uh, many assumptions that one runs into in, in various game theory classes, right? That you have um, lambs that are pretending to be lions. Um, in this case, I found that unified governments, whether hawkish or dovish, both find ways to maintain peace. And I didn't get into it as much in the presentation because it's something that really comes out in the case studies. But both of these unified governments, whether hawkish or dovish, 
can chart their own paths. Uh, unified, dovish governments seek peace through negotiations, perhaps making concessions, but they're viewed as credible negotiating partners. On the other hand, unified hawkish governments uh, maintain peace, as we would expect, through military strength, through um, typical avenues of deterrence. So this idea that dovish governments need to necessarily pretend that they're hawkish, um, I, I simply don't find to be as credible as it often appears in the literature. All right, that's it. Thank you very much for your attention, particularly on November 4th. And I'd love to get questions. So appreciate it. Yes, yeah, sorry if I don't know people's names. I'll, I'll just point. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, I thought it was a great presentation. That's good. So I wasn't, uh, I wasn't a divided government. I, you could understand what I'm trying to say. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's a great, and um, that's that's something that I, I kept, it was sort of in the back of my mind as I was doing this project, because, of course, inevitably, I mean, this is why we have the rally around the flag effect, right? If you're attacked, suddenly all differences, partisan differences are aside. You're right, in the Falklands case, after Argentina attacks, I mean, the, the Labor Party can't be more hawkish. They, you know, we've got to go get them now, and um, and uh, they're, they're more than willing to rake the government over the coals on this, that, you know, Oh, you allowed the attack of the Falklands on your watch. You know, there's something wrong with the conservatives. Um, however, the, the the fact is that the plans that are, are made uh, to attack the islands, of course, occur in a much earlier date. Uh, and in, in a number of the different studies, right, these these plans for attack may occur six months in advance. They may occur nine months in advance or a year in advance. So the, the actual idea we are going to attempt to reclaim this territory occurs long before any signs of, of government unity approach. Now, your question is, why don't they just forward induct and realize that they're going to be facing a unified uh, government? Um, I think part of why that occurs is because they are surprised by the lack of disunity. So they're used to seeing um, unified governments, and the, the, the fact that they see this disunity um, sort of energizes them. Um, what's often the case in the case studies you see is that the leaders of these potential challenging regimes um, they view this as an opportunity to change the bargaining structure. They're not necessarily going to believe that this is going to be the war that ends all wars and they will have this territory without questions. What they want to do is, is gain the advantage, and so when they do go into negotiations, that they will be at a stronger point. They don't really care at that point whether the government's unified or not. And I, in most of the cases, um, the Falklands actually being the exception, the government that invades anticipates, of course, we're going to receive some sort of military response. Um, 
Certainly in the Falklands case, part of the reason for the miscalculation there is the distance involved and the fact that Britain had essentially withdrawn most of its defense, uh, defense at that point. And so I'd argue um, the, the potential challenging government at some point, they don't care. They don't care after they attack what happens with the government. What they do care is what future concessions they might be able to extract because of their advantage bargaining position. So if you look at Egypt in 1973 with Israel over the Sinai, Israel was giving sort of mixed signals about the degree to which it really wanted to hold the Sinai or, or the significance of the Sinai to Israel, as opposed to the Golan Heights, as opposed to the West Bank, which it, which it gave clear signals it planned to hold. The Sinai was much more sort of ambiguous. When Egypt then launched the, the war in 1973, its hopes wasn't that it was going to take hold the Sinai and that would be the end of it. They expected a British response. Uh, but instead that they would force Britain back, uh, force Israel back to the bargaining table uh, and force, uh, force perhaps a better bargain than they could have received before. Okay. Yes? Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, these other countries, yep. Yep, yep. It's big. Yes, yes, yes. Yep, yep. Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I have other analyses, um, statistical analyses, which include alliance portfolios as well. Um, the problem with including them is there's a big overlap between your own capabilities and the capabilities of your alliance partners. So they, they tend to sort of co-vary. Sure, and I, I would argue as well, in 1973, the United States doesn't know what it wants to do in the Middle East. You have Rogers, who's out trying to sell his peace plan, and at the same time, you have Kissinger behind the scenes saying, yeah, we don't really want this, right? Um, and Because their focus, you know, the Kissinger-Nixon focus was on detente, and they didn't sort of want to get sucked into the Middle East at that point. Of the of the target government, um, I don't see I don't see the unity or disunity of allies as being significant in the cases that the I looked at. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think there's a story to be told, um, which which is very interesting about the unity or disunity of potential allies or of potential countries who are going to intervene. Um, because, for example, uh, once again, to return to 1973, um, the fact that the United States was had no clear Middle East policy in, in the Nixon administration at that point um, certainly didn't help the Israelis feel like they could rely on a true mediation effort or necessarily rely on U.S. backing for, uh, for anything that might be undertaken. Um, and so what happens, though, is my sense is 
from, from the 1973 ca- case is that the different sides within the Israeli government play up these divisions within the U.S. to their own advantage. So what you see in 1973 is those that believe that Israel can still negotiate focus on the Rogers plan. Those that believe that Israel has to accumulate as many weapons as it can and simply prepare to hold, you know, buckle down, they focus on the fact that Nixon and Kissinger aren't really thinking about Israel and that Israel needs to be worried about that. Um, and, and so, and you see similar dynamics in uh, prior to the 56 war, which is somewhat different because Israel is the aggressor there, but, but where Israel, the division is whether Israel should go out and look for allies or should they just go out and look for weapons. Um, and, and you have, and there are divisions within the Israeli cabinet or over that. And those also reflect the divisions that you see in Washington um, and to some degree in the United Kingdom over what sort of the right approach is to take. So I think what, what the divisions allow to happen is that they allow sides to see what they want to see. Those that want to push for negotiations will focus on the divisions in the other government that are looking at negotiations. Those that want to focus on the, uh, the deterrence focus on you know, what they, they want to see in, in Washington as well. Great question. Thank you. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree, and part of the reason that I wanted to pursue the case studies is because I feel like a lot of the literature on signaling doesn't do this. It says that there's a signal, and we assume how that signal is interpreted, and certainly for statistical results, that's where it leaves us too. We, we, don't, we can't get it from that. So in the case studies, part of what I'm trying to unpack there is this causal chain, which ends with the potential aggressive government taking a particular view of, of the state they're going after. Um, and most of the times, not just with Sadat in, in 73, but a lot of times, that is the argument, right? It's, it's a potential aggressor, and their story is the one that we should be thinking about, not the potential target state. However, in the case studies, what you find is these, these uh, leaders or key leaders within their governments are looking at the target state and are seeing these types of divisions and the problems that those divisions create. Um, and what they, what Egypt saw in 1973, and we have fairly good evidence, um, is they saw that Israel wasn't fir- firmly committed to the uh, Sinai, um, not nearly as committed as they were to other territories. Most importantly, I think they saw that negotiations were, were just not going to go anywhere. Um, there, I would argue there are few times you're going to have a policymaker say um, that the government is, is uh, the, that they'll make some sort of astute analysis um, necessarily of the, the government which they're going to attack. What instead I would argue in 1973 is that the results of the British internal divisions are what the, uh, the Egyptians were looking at. And they saw divisions within the Israeli cabinet that frustrated them. I mean, part of what happens is um, what you see is a loss of 
confidence on the Egyptian side that the conflict can be resolved or the dispute can be resolved any other way but through military force. And the problem that they have is that they're, uh, from the negotiation side, they have the Israeli uh, foreign secretary with whom they appear to be able to make progress, of course, not directly, but through the United States. But on the other side, they see a, a government outside of that, uh, led by Mayer, um, who is totally intransigent on this issue. And she, she and other members of the government were more than happy to sort of gridlock on the issue. Well, they knew Egypt would not be happy just sort of letting it sit there. And as the tensions rose, Israel wasn't a, didn't make concessions, although there's great debate within the Israeli cabinet about what sort of concessions they might make. So um, there's a question of how far they might pull back on the Sinai to allow the Egyptians to cross over and take some of the, some of the territory. Um, but there are no, uh, no, no significant concessions that are, that are being made. And even those little concessions that are debated within the cabinet eventually lead to nothing. I mean, there, there's no sort of consensus over what uh, concessions they're going to make. Um, all of this, in the end, leads to an Egyptian view of the Israelis uh, as absolutely intransigent, just unwilling to, um, to negotiate. Um, but they come there by way of initially believing that there might be some sort of deal that can be struck. And, of course, part of that belief comes from 1967, right? Initially after um, when the Israelis make some very big offers um, to not just Egypt but other neighbors, um, which are slowly then rescinded over time. Um, and so you, part of this is the, the changing expectations that are involved in, in uh, 1973. I don't know if that completely answers the question, but... One of the, the alternative uh, expectations I look at is mm-hmm. Um, to, to shift the example, I think of the, um, the India-Pakistan case. And um, before the, the 1999 uh, cargo war, Pakistan was extremely aware of the divisions that existed within the, the Indian government. Um, and those divisions made Pervez Musharraf think that it would make a good target. I mean, he specifically says this is a time to strike because they won't be able to respond quickly. They, they appear very weak. They're not really in control of their own country. Uh, and so that, you know, at, at that time, it's also uh, a lame duck government that's waiting for elections to be held. And so that certainly fuels the, the, the war in 1999. Um, and, and, and so I think you do have some uh, ability to perceive these divisions on the part of the adversary, partially because in these territorial disputes, you have such interrated interaction. You're, you're, these countries are constantly coming in contact with each other, if not directly in the Israeli case, then um, at least through a, a third-party mediator. So there's, there's sort of this ongoing cycle of, of, of talks. And because of that, they're very much aware of what the next election cycle will bring, what's going on um, in the foreign ministry versus the defense ministry, those, those sorts of issues. And they're, 
doing the case studies, there is good evidence that those sorts of discussions are taking place in these governments. Now, you know, I, I believe in multi-causality. I, I'm not going to claim this is the only thing that's causing states war, but I do think it is an important factor in, in you know, in what's going on. Yeah. Uh, you've got 10 cases. Um, so s- some of these are counted, uh, are actually one conflict, but more states are involved, um, right? So we have, let me see if I have a slide for this, actually. I used to have a slide that showed the... So here are the the countries that are involved. Um, not all of these dyads, of course, lead to conflict. Um, you know, the West German dyads, there's there's never a war there. Um, the Japanese dyads, there's never a war there. A lot of the conflicts are coming up in the Israeli case and the Indian case. Um, in India, you have a number of conflicts over Kashmir. Um, in Israel, you have the, uh, the 1970 war of attrition, the 1973 um, war. Um, the United States uh, and North Korea um, and uh, Britain and uh, and Argentina. Uh, so half the cases are Israeli being attacked. You've got ten cases, it's very involved. Right, right. And half of them are Israel. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, although, once again, if I... Uh, so... If you take Israel out of the, uh, of the statistical analyses, at least, the numbers still stand up. Um, now, I wouldn't want to take Israel out because I do think it's it's fairly important, and it's important because it's a democracy in a bad neighborhood, and um, that makes it particularly interesting. In addition, of course, besides the war variables, I also have uh, the militarized dispute variables, which include a lot more cases. There you're looking at 90, 99 cases instead of 10. Um, but, of course, these are lower level and, and sort of less interesting um, conflicts than, than the wars themselves. But there you have a lot more hits on, um, on some of the others as well. Although, of course, Israel has I mean, a lot of militarized interstate disputes as well. I mean, that's a simple fact. So Lebanon attacked Israel sometimes? Oh, that's in the U.S. Yeah. yeah. Western France is bizarre? Yeah. It's pretty brief. Yeah. As you can see. <laughs> uh, yeah, the um, I thought about including that. Instead, I, I chose the United States, North Korea. Um, the the reason being there is um, particularly for the conflicts, at least up till arguably the mid seventies. North Koreans are primarily focused on the United States. And they're not focused on what the South Koreans are doing. Yeah, I mean, they're sure they're they're burrowing under. The, they're trying to take out South Korean leaders, but in terms of their calculus for potential invasion um, or trying to retake it, I mean, they're sort of running a two-pronged approach. One is they're trying to incite the countryside into rebellion. The second is they're really trying to test U.S. commitment to um, to South Korea. And um, so, I, I mean, that's something I thought about adding South Korea. Although South Korea also isn't democratic for a large swath of this. Um, so sort of come in late to the data set. Um, so I'd, I'd like to have uh, I'd like to have them be democratic. Um, <laughs> that was a divide. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, part of this is also figuring about uh, thinking, thinking of other cases to include. And you mentioned 1914, right? This is a case I'd love to, to look into. That's part of what I plan to do this year is add, add this. I mean, it's incredibly messy, but it's really fun and interesting. So um, I'd like to extend the data set back in time as well because, you know, 50 through 2000, part of that is the ease of data collection. But, I, you know, some of these big conflicts, it's, you know, World War I is really key. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. So th- that's great. I mean, I'd, I'd love to, to extend the, the realm as well, and, and that's something I'd like to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, this, is, this is the next project. <laughs> yeah. I just had a question about the logic. It's related to something that Thomas Thomas said earlier. Mm-hmm. The, the problem that states run into, and, and this is something that really comes out in, in the case studies, and, and to some degree this statistical results as well, uh, new governments come into power, and part of what you know the, the Jelpi Greco thesis is that new governments are going to be more likely to attack. Um, my work uh, actually shows them to be less likely to be attacked. The, the likelihood of attack increases with tenure. Um, part of that may be the idiosyncrasies of my data set. But I think what that also points to is that when a new government comes to power, they're sort of given a new chance in these negotiations. And it's only over time that the potential challenger realizes this is going nowhere. Like, they came into, gov- you know, they came into government with some promises. We ca- they came in believing that we could cut some deal with them, but it's not going to happen. What you see in a number of these cases is the goodwill that comes that accompanies the government coming to power runs out over time. And what I would argue is, as far as the divisions go, um, once the potential aggressor state figures out that they're dealing with a, a government that's horribly internally divided, they say, we're not going to make any progress through these negotiations because they can't, they can't credibly deliver on anything, and they're sort of playing for time, and that, that becomes clear uh, over time. And then the military aspect says this might also be a good time to attack because they don't seem to be putting up an adequate deterrence. And so those two factors sort of combine a few years down the road for, go- for the uh, government to say, okay, now's, now's really our chance to, to go after that. Right, that would that would change the calculus certainly. Um, that yeah. Works, that works very well for seventy three and the mobile area and that's a huge Yeah. That's that's um, that is certainly a cal- and once again that's that plays the fact that there is you know, these countries are watching the domestic politics of the of these states and, and, and are aware of you know if uh, if Likud comes to power in Israel, they'll be dealing with a different set of characters than they are if they're dealing with uh, with labor. So those are certainly in there. Yeah. Wouldn't you, um, have you talked talk about dealing with value of the stakes? I mean, in the case of the Falklands, attacking the Falklands is not the same as attacking yeah. Liverpool. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. where it's attacking Israel, you're basically attacking Liverpool. You think that one would be more encouraged to make a something that, that should not be important to Yeah, although I, I would argue even in the Israeli case, there are differences. Uh, I mean, the Rabin government in the early 90s uh, made was appeared to be willing to make significant concessions, including the Golan Heights um, to, to um, Syria, even though that would have been a shock, certainly to many members of the Israeli public, that he was willing to go that far. The Sinai, I would argue, is not necessarily of, of high value and, and not necessarily Liverpool. Of course, that's different than you know Tel Aviv or Jerusalem. Right, right. When, when they actually attack. <coughs> yeah, I think though. Right. There's no movement then to uh, yeah to Dover. Right. <laughs> yeah, I, but I think that. Um, you know, Israel is, and I think your, your sort of line of questions points this out. You know, I mean, undoubtedly there are some unique factors in the Israeli situation: size of the state, the the, the threat it faces from uh, from its neighbors. Um, but a number of the attacks, excepting '67, uh, is, is sort of a different ball of wax. But '73, while the Syrians do attack from the north, the Egyptians have no grand scheme to overrun Israel. They're not. They're not looking to, to wipe Israel off the face of the map. What they really want to do is they want to get to Sinai. Um, and well, Sadat that's, wants that's to do it for... Right, this is just the, the fall. <laughs> right, uh, that, that's, that's true. Right. I mean, I would argue in the case that India isn't all that much different. I mean, India views um, these as, as pretty significant threats as well. Not necessarily from China and the Northwest Territories, but, but certainly for uh, Kashmir that this is a fairly important um, and not just symbolic area to keep in India. Uh, so I, I don't think there, there are as great differences between India and Israel, perhaps. Yeah, the Falklands, it's, it's, um, it is 8,000 miles away, um, and, and there isn't likelihood that that will spread to the rest of England. But for many conservatives... I, that view would be harder to get out of them. Um, certainly for for the moderates in the Thatcher government, that was the view. Why are we holding on to this piece of territory 8,000 miles away? Um, so I, I have thought about adding stakes in, in, in sort of, instead of doing that, what I've uh, done is tried to generally include contiguous um, conflicts. That's not always the case, but tried to focus on um, territories contiguous. Of course, the example here isn't, but... Um, you know, all the Israeli-Indian cases are, uh, and, and hold that constant. Um, or at least sort of the near abroad, maybe, um, like Gibraltar. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you all for staying. Really appreciate it. <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm asking you to just close up because he had Oh, thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you for your questions. Oh, Okay. And I, I am working on the German-Israeli relations. German-Israeli relations.